Now, last session when we were interacting with one another, uh, I was talking to a couple of you, and uh, thank you. It may very well be that I uh, miscommunicated to you regarding what I would call the a core of truths. And I want to just take a couple of moments and, and kick off on that so that we're not uh, heading in different directions as far as our thinking is concerned. Um, I would like to define the core of truth as that which is essential for an individual to have a relationship with the living God. And it may very well be that there are people who read the Bible and say, I understand what it says, but I don't agree with it. But I would like to submit to you that as far as the core is concerned, people would agree that that's what the Bible says regarding it. But I would like to say that beyond that, there's another circle. And I would like to suggest that that circle there represents the area where it's not clear. And by that I mean is that there are people who would say, yeah, that's the core, but this ought to be included in the core as well. And somebody says, yeah, I don't think that should be included in the core. I agree with you in this core, but we ought to include this. And uh, someone might say, well, uh, yeah, I think the virgin birth is, is really part of the core. That's essential to believe. And somebody say, well, no, I really don't think that's essential. It's, it's certainly, I believe it, it's important, but it's not essential. It ought to belong here, it ought to belong over here. But, but baptism is important. And somebody else say, well, no, I don't really think baptism is important. Uh, I certainly agree with you as far as this part of the core is concerned, but I'd have to include baptism there in order for me to be in agreement with you. And somebody else say, well, no, I think baptism ought not to be in there at all. But uh, what I really believe is the importance of church attendance and keeping on Sunday. Now that's really an important thing. And so they say, well, yeah, I, I agree with you as far as the course concerned, but I can't agree on that. And so there's, there's going to be fuzz there. In other words, by fuzz I mean that Christians are going to differ as to what ought to go in that second circle there. But then I'd like to suggest that there's a third circle. And that is a circle of what I would call the Christian liberty. That's the thing that I was talking about this morning. The Christian liberties. Where people would agree that the Bible does not teach certain things, but have strong convictions that they ought not to be practiced anyway. And a man may say, well, yeah, I know that the Bible doesn't say that you can't have more than one wife. But I personally think it would be kind of a dumb idea to have it. Therefore, I would certainly want to include that as part of my convictions. Yeah, I know that there are no prohibitions to drinking per se in the Bible, but I personally think that, you know, a man's making a mistake if he starts to drink. I know that the Bible doesn't say you can't gamble, but I think if a man begins to gamble, I think he's really entering into the wrong path. I think that is obviously not right. There are, there are principles in the scriptures regarding godliness and holiness, that if you start moving in that direction, you're transgressing the biblical absolutes. Now, what I was saying to you is that the closer, the further out you draw your, your line, 
whether you draw it here or here or here, the further out you go, the less commonality you're going to have with other Christians and the more difficulty you're going to have relating to the non-Christian. And that, in saying that, I'm not suggesting to you that you are not to have convictions in these areas. It is just when you start making them absolutes. For us to say that this core is an absolute, we cannot remove on that. We've got to hang on to that. I think everybody would agree. But when you go on to the next circle and say, well, I'd like to expand that circle a little bit. Not only are they personal convictions, I believe that they're essential for fellowship with other people. And then we go on a little bit further and say, well, you can go as far as you want, but boy, in our fellowship, we're going to forbid any of these things over here in the Christian Liberty Circle. The more that you do that, the more difficult you're going to have relating to the non-Christian and the more difficult you're going to have fellowshipping with other Christians. Now, I am not suggesting to you that you are not to have convictions regarding liberties. I'm just simply saying to you that you've got to be careful not to make those liberties that, that you have prohibited. In other words, the line that you've drawn here, the fence that you've built here, I'm saying that you cannot make those normative for other people. Because that makes it divisive. I am not saying that there ought not to be convictions in this area. As a matter of fact, I'd like to go one step further and suggest to you that if you do not have convictions in these areas, in other words, if you exercise your Christian liberty to the limits, it's just a matter of time before you're going to get sucked into the world. Or to put it another way, the man who insists on living perpetually on the edge here, it's just a matter of time before he falls. And so it's essential for us that we develop convictions regarding these. But it is also essential we don't make those normative for other people. And that's the thing we've got to hold on to. Because the moment we begin to judge other people's Christianity by the, on the basis of where they are in this area, it's at that point that we really begin to err and we jeopardize our ability to minister effectively. Does that make sense? Now, that I defend institutions in setting the primary in this area. For example, Wheaton College says, and I, I don't know about Wheaton, but uh, Bob, you're a graduate of that. What are some of the requirements? You can't go to movies? You can't drink? What are some other things you can't do as long as you're a member of that school? I may not feel that way regarding those. But I defend their right to do that. And I think every institution or organization has that right. And, and if a man wants to go to Wheaton, then he ought to understand that that's the ground rules. And if he doesn't want to, to follow those, he ought to go someplace else. That's their prerogative. When the church does it, it's a whole other ballgame. Because we're saying that the church is the body of Christ. And the moment I say that you can belong to Christ's body, but you can't belong to my church, I make myself a sect. Therefore, it behooves me to make sure that the church has requirements for membership that are no different than the requirements to go to heaven. 
Because the moment I say that this man can go to heaven, that is be part of Jesus' church, but he can't be part of my church, I make a distinction in my mind between my church and Jesus' church, and that's lethal. Yes? Am I implying what? No, I'm not implying that at all. But I'm saying that you can say, okay, not, the Bible doesn't say I don't, can't gamble, so therefore I'm going to spend as much time as I can in Las Vegas. The Bible doesn't say I can't go to movies, so I'm going to go to all the X-rated movies that come to town. The Bible doesn't say that I can't do, drink, so I, I spend all my time in bars. The Bible doesn't say that I can't... And you begin to, to move out to the limits of what the Bible says. That's just a matter of time before it's going to suck you right in. Simply because none of us are that strong. The Bible does not say that I cannot go to bed with another woman. It just says I cannot have sex with her. But I'm an idiot if I think I can climb into bed with another woman. <laughs> I'm exercising my Christian liberties in that area. <laughs> and I know men who, who insist on living on, on the edge of that. And without exception, it's just a matter of time before they get drawn in. Yes? But how can you rationalize that away when the Bible does say that the body is the holy temple of God? And you know, if you do those things which are <coughs> dishonoring the body uh, physically, overeating, too much faith, or whatever, right. then even though the Bible doesn't say you're not supposed to do that, it does say. Right. See, that's the problem with the positive commandments that we were talking about earlier this morning. That you can't interpret the positive commandments for other people. So you say, uh, you know, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore I ought to be exercising. And you look at a man and say, well, if he's not exercising, he's obviously not taking care of his body. And another man says, well, you know, if you're overeating, if you're obesity, if you're overweight, that's obviously not taking care of your body. Another man may be uh, a non-athletic individual who is obese and looks at a guy who drinks and says, oh, that's sin. Or smokes, or whatever. So that's always the problem. Yes. Say, would you please uh, define the church biblically? The church is the body of Christ. And I wouldn't want it to go any further than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes? What about the flip side of the coin on this Christian liberty thing, though the denominations of sects that are especially strict and legalistic and rigid in their application of these peripheral issues. It seems to me, from my own experience at any rate, that that can be a killer of the soul, or, or not mean of the soul, but of the spirit, that the spirit. Yeah. So they may be very snug and comfortable within their own fellowship, but they become unacceptable to the non-Christian, and they can't fellowship much with fellow believers. They, they hold everybody outside of their circle suspect. 
I just want to make that for clarification. I didn't want to get high centered in that. Let's see if I can pick up where we were. We're talking now about the years 400 to 800 A.D. This was a time of decline for Christianity. I'm reviewing now what we touched very briefly toward the last part of the last hour. There were three major factors that brought about the decline mentioned by Kenneth Scott Lauderhead in his little book, Christianity Through the Ages. Number one, there was the weakening of the Roman Empire. When the seat of the government moved to Constantinople in 325 AD, the western part of the empire was all but lost. The Byzantine Empire, which was the eastern expression of the Roman Empire, continued until the year 1453. And you remember I mentioned that to you, that they fell at that time by the Ottoman Turks. St. Sophia, the famous church of the, which was, you know, the St. Peter's of the uh, of Constantinople became a mosque and is to this day and was controlled by the Ottoman Turks the Ottoman Turks ruled as an expression of Islam until the First World War and any of you who have read any of Lawrence uh, of Arabia or have seen the movie or anything they were the ones that he was fighting back in those days See, the Arabs were trying to get their freedom from the Ottoman Turks the second thing that brought about decline to Christianity in this 400 year period was the barbarian hordes. No sooner was one group assimilated than another group came. They destroyed the Roman defenses in Germany and the Roman barbarians joined their eastern friends in the pillage that ensued and it was kind of a, a free-for-all throughout Europe in those days the third thing that brought about the decline was the rise of Islam Justinian was the emperor of the eastern part of the church in Constantinople at that time and what happened was that he was finding so he was here and this part right here with Greece and up here in Bulgaria, and Hungary, and Yugoslavia, and Turkey, this whole area was all part of the Eastern Empire. And he was constantly fighting these hordes that were coming down. And in order to do it, he was taxing the rest of the empire. And in his taxing of the rest of the empire, uh, that did not go over very well at all. And so the people who were taxed felt that they were being subjected to hardships. Christianity was associated with colonialism and with taxation. And the Muslim movement was simply a reformed effort to free the Arabs from that. It was interesting. When Julian was on the throne of Constantinople, he persecuted the Christians. And the Arabs fought to the church. When Justinian who was a champion of the Christian cause, came on the throne, they immediately went the other direction. The same issue of dissimulation that we've seen since we began our time together. So, the, the Islamic movement was simply an Arabic expression uh, for independence. As I mentioned to you last hour, it was a, it was a nationalistic movement. It united the nomadic tribes. It was a homebrew of the Judeo-Christian religion 
that raised havoc with Christianity in the East and Africa. By the end of the 7th century, they had taken all of the Middle East, all of North Africa, and Spain. They had marched across the Pyrenees Mountains, which divides Spain from France, and come, come on into France. And on the plains of France, in what they called the Battle of Tours, a man by the name of Charles Martel stopped them. And that was in 732 A.D. Now again, what happened was that when the Mongolian hordes came, and we're going to be looking at those later, but when the Mongolian hordes followed with Genghis Khan and Timberlane, and they came through, Muslim tribes were in control in this whole area. And when they came, they could not defeat Western Europe. But they did defeat the Arabs. And because they defeated the Arabs, and they could not defeat Western Europe, they became Muslim instead of Christian. And so what happened was all of the Mongolian people became Christian, I mean a Muslim, and that's the reason why Pakistan and northern India is Muslim today. And uh, you remember when India was given its independence after the end of the Second World War. There was a tremendous struggle as to whether or not they would be able to maintain it, their unity or whether they divided up between uh, Pakistan and, uh, and India. Pakistan being the Muslim majority, India being the Hindu majority. And they decided on the latter. And that was a tremendously uh, traumatic experience in the life of India as they wrestled with that question. And, and, and as I say, uh, Europe opted for that kind of partition. And then later on, it split again between Bangladesh and Pakistan. The Bangladesh and Pakistan are both principally Muslim. And they, that came about as a result of Timberlane and the Mongolian hordes, which had at that time converted to the Muslim religion and had conquered northern India. So during this 400-year period, Christianity had made little gain and was confined to this cul-de-sac of Europe that had not broken out of it. As percentage-wise of the population in the year 800, there were fewer Christians than there was in the year 400. There was the developing world of the papacy. The Celtics continued to flourish in Europe, and they were the principal factor in evangelizing those barbaric hordes that kept sweeping through. They kept trying to assimilate them and lead them to Christ. They set up a number of monasteries, which, as I mentioned to you, later became the great cities of Europe. The papal power continued to rise. Augustine, not the Augustine that we talked about last night, but Augustine the monk was sent to England in 596 A.D. But it was, the purpose for his going was to convert the British Celtics to Rome, because they were independent of Rome. And, and Augustine was most helpful in the, leading the Anglo-Saxons to Christ because the Anglo-Saxons had resisted in England the Celtic advances because they didn't want to be assimilated by the Celts. So when Augustine came from Rome representing the Roman religion, they were very much more amenable to it and became, therefore, Roman Catholics and were able to evangelize the um, 
Anglo-Saxons in a way that the Celtics could not. And as I mentioned to you last night, then when Henry VIII in the 16th century converted to Protestantism, the Celtics immediately became Roman Catholic. At this time, there came into existence what they called the Decretals of Isidora. They were part of an, a document called the Donation of Constantine. Now, some of you who are Roman Catholics may have heard of this. I mention it to you because it was a building block in the power of the papacy. It was later to be found a forged document. But what it did was it reestablished the fact that the Bishop of Rome was the leader of the church. And that Rome and all the secular power of, this, of that area had been handed over to the Pope. And so what he did was increasingly in this period of 400 to 800 reach out in the secular dimension. And I mentioned to you that Charles Martel was the one in the Battle of Tours that stopped the onslaught of uh, Islam. His grandson Charles the Great, or Charlemagne, was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800. And that sealed the, uh, the authority of the Vatican over secular power. And Charlemagne came on the throne with the idea of reestablishing the old Roman Empire borders, uniting the church and the state in the process. It was the dream of the Holy Roman Empire. It never really materialized, but that was where they were trying to head. A couple of observations before we go to the next period of history. The church was preoccupied with structure in this 400 year period. And because of that, had little time for missions. Ministry was in the hands of the clergy, not in the laity. And therefore, the church was preoccupied with administration and organization and gave very little attention to reaching out to the unconverted segments of the world. Control appeared to be more important to the church than conversion to Christ. By the year 1200, Innocent III said, quote, Christ left to Peter the governance not only of the church only, but of the whole world. And that's how they thought. They believed that there was no salvation outside of the church. And thus resistance in the other parts of the world was not so much to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was to being controlled by the resurrected Roman Empire. And for that reason it was never able to break out of that cul-de-sac. Okay, any questions before we go to the, the third expansion, the years 800 to 1200 A.D.? No, it was in the hands of the professionals. I misspoke myself, I'm sorry. It was not in the hands of the laity. Okay, yes. Can you give us a quick synopsis of the general beliefs of Islam? And so I don't know if I can remember there. They have five basic tenets, and I'm not sure I can remember them all. Um, they borrowed very heavily.
from um, the Judeo-Christian religion. Uh, Christ plays a very prominent role. Uh, they felt that there were a number of prophets. Um, God is one. They did not believe in the Trinity. And Abraham was the first of the Adam was the first of the great prophets. Then Abraham, and then Noah, and then Moses, and then Christ, and then Muhammad. And Muhammad was the greatest. And it was believed that Muhammad ascended into heaven on his horse from Mount Moriah, which was the place of the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, where the um, Solomon's Temple was built. Also the place where Abraham is reported to have offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Um, Mecca is the most holy place, because that's where it began, and that is in Saudi Arabia. The next most holy place is Jerusalem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how big they numbered. Nobody fully understands that I have been able to read what brought them into existence. Islam is a, is a warrior's religion too, isn't it? And he who draws his sword in the name of the faith will go to paradise. Yes, I feel that's, that was one of the major tenets. That's one of the five that they believed. Um, again, it, it was a nationalistic religion. And so the sword was very much part of it. Okay, let's take the next 400 years. 800 to 1200 A.D. Carolinians. Charles Martel, remember I mentioned to you, stopped the Muslim advance in 732. Pepin the Short became the successor, and then following him, Charles the Great, who was Charlemagne, crowned by the Holy Roman Empire. And he tried to reestablish the Roman borders. But as he tried to reestablish the Roman borders, what he did was he began to go to war against the Germanic tribes and against the Celts and against all these people who were trying to resist and maintain their independence. Now these tribes that he was fighting against in the Anglo-Saxons, the Celts, the Germanic peoples were the ones that were the buffer from the Vikings. The Vikings came out of Denmark, Norway, Sweden. And when he began to go to war against them, then the resistance against the Vikings was sapped, and he never was able to develop the Holy Roman Empire, but it unleashed the Viking movement. And they came with a vengeance that uh, is unbelievable. Charlemagne died in the year 814. The empire was divided between his three sons, by 835 A.D., the Vikings came. Europe was relaxed, they were unprepared, and they came in droves. Three, four hundred ships of warriors at a time. The number of ships grew larger and larger, and they were pillaged in England, in France. They went up the rivers, and all along the way destroyed the monasteries, and the cities, the villages. 
some cities and monasteries were destroyed a, a dozen times in those years as they would be rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. In 886, 40,000 Vikings and 600 ships laid siege to Paris. It was savage and it was brutal. Unlike the Asiatic people, the Vikings decided to settle and become farmers. <coughs> the Vikings were not uh, nomads like the, uh, the Mongols. And so they did settle. It was interesting that Alfred the Great in the ninth century stopped them in England and developed a truce with them and gave them some land and they began to settle there. Part of the land that was given to them was the coast of France. And because they came from Norway in that part, they were called Normans. And the Normans were just simply the Vikings of this period that elected to become farmers in France. And it was the Normans that later on crossed the channel and conquered the Saxons. <coughs> the Vikings finished off the Celtic missionary enterprise. They ceased to function as a viable force. Islam continued to press from northern Africa and the Magyars, which were the Hun Asiatic people, continued to press and they were fighting on the eastern borders. And so for this 400 year period, Europe was in turmoil. Again, an outsider, outside observer would have wondered if Christianity would survive. The barbaric hordes from Europe, then Islam, then the Vikings in the year 800. Interesting that during the, this period, the Byzantine Church, in the monastic movement, sent out a couple of missionaries, Cyril and Methodius. They were brothers. And they went on up into the Slavic people. Now the Slavic people had a language, but they had no alphabet and they had no written language at all. And there was a pressure on the part of the Germanic people to include the Slavs in Rome. And Cyril and Methodius did not want to include their missionary work in Rome because they came out of the Eastern or Byzantine church. So what they did in order to prevent being assimilated by Rome in the missionary efforts developed a brand new alphabet for the Slavic people so that the Germanic people with their alphabet couldn't understand it and translated the Bible into a brand new alphabet and a brand new language and that is what Russia uses today. And if you've ever seen Russian and you say to yourself, where in the world did they ever get that? Cyril and Methodius, the two missionaries, are the one that designed it. For the writing of the scriptures to keep that part of the world from being assimilated by Rome. Interesting, isn't it? What year was that one? That was about 850 A.D. 
Another interesting thing that happened was the monastic movement in Europe became increasingly modalities rather than sodalities. They developed cities. Uh, they developed a defense against the onslaught of these different hordes. People moved into them for the sake of defense. They became therefore centers of learning. The trades began to develop there. The artisans. All of that began to unite there. And that became, as I mentioned to you last night, the cities, the great cities of Europe. From these monastic movements, the scholarship developed, and from that scholarship came the scholastic movement in around the uh, 11th and 12th centuries. And some of the great minds of Roman Catholicism came out of that era. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with them. Names like Anselm, Abelard, Aquinas, Duns Curtis. And these were great, great thinkers. And in their writings, they began what we know to be the Renaissance. The monastic life sought by the laity, or was sought by the laity, in order to be more spiritual and separated from the world. Priests were in the monastic movement, but their being sober rather than mobile, that is, mobile rather than stationary, gave them the freedom that the modality did not enjoy. But even as I say, even that became increasingly more mortal and it became stiff. What are the periods that we consider to be dark ages or middle ages? Usually from the fall of Rome, uh, the sacking of Rome in 410, somewhere in that period, on into the, the, the time of the Renaissance. Yeah, normally called the Dark Ages. About a thousand years. Yeah, a little less than that, yeah. 800 to a thousand years. Yes. See, and during this time, the church did very, very little. Well, yes. You're talking about the rewriting the alphabet. Nice, Cyril, and Methodius? Methodius, yes. Um, that's the same thing Russia's done since the Second World War with Iran. Uh, religion of that area, too, isn't it? Since that time? You see that? I don't know. That may very well be. As I understand, that's how they gain their, their influence. Yeah. by way of review then in the early days Christianity was not associated with any culture or economic or philosophic or political system and it gave its impetus when it did then Persia turned to Islam China and Japan resisted the gospel because it was associated with colonialism and even up to the present time the resistance of the Orient to the gospel is in direct proportion to the gospels being tied to colonialism and that's an interesting phenomenon. Because in Korea, Korea at that time was under the influence 
on Japan and then China, and they were kicked back and forth. They were always the underdog and always under somebody's power. Not so Japan and China. So when the missionaries came into Japan and China, they came in associated with colonialism. Therefore, when they got their freedom, they rejected Christianity with it. So that in Japan today, and they're really making great inroads, today Japan is probably just a little bit more than 1% Christian. In the 1960s, it was less than one half of 1% Christian. In China, when they were expelled with the communist takeover in 1948, there were very, very few. It was a small, fledgling, struggling church in China. Not so in Korea. Because when the missionaries came into Korea, the missionaries were associated not with colonialism, because colonialism was being exercised by Japan and, and uh, China. It was therefore associated with nationalism. And so you can read, for example, in Korean history how the missionaries hid the king and queen of, uh, of Korea and were involved in what we would call the underground. And as a result, tremendous numbers of Koreans became Christians. And so a huge segment of Korea is Christian. I don't have the percent right now. Do you know what it is, Bob, today? So when Billy Graham was over there, for example, I had a crusade that had a million people. The largest crusade he's ever had in his life. Isn't that the largest church in the world? And the largest church in the world that we know of is in Korea, yes. And I don't know, maybe 20% of the population in South Korea is Christian? Maybe more than that now. Making tremendous inroads. Why? Because the gospel gentleman was never associated with colonialism. And interesting also, and we'll talk about this in our last session, that we felt that when communism took over in China, that the church was virtually dead. And uh, when the China began to open in the last decade, more and more was done on us that when the missionaries got knocked out of there and was no longer associated with Western imperialism, it grew and flourished. And the number of Christians in, in, in uh, China numbers in the millions because it was finally in their hands. Christianity was most often accepted, therefore, by those for whom it was an option. When cultural traditions were at stake, it was rejected. And that's the way it has been through the ages. Any questions on that? As to where we are. Why don't we stand up and take a break? You look like you're about ready to conk out.
Okay, before we go into the next period of 1200 to 1600 AD, I'm going to bring up today on, on terms of the dogma in the Roman Catholic Church. In 754 AD, the Pope crowned Pepin the Short, the father of Charlemagne, and then in his turn, Charlemagne, and the papal claim to appoint and remove secular rulers was established. In the year 1060 A.D., the Pope was elected by cardinals, and it was decided that he didn't have to, did not have to be a Roman. In 1215 A.D., transubstantiation came into existence as a dogma. 
which said that the bread and the wine turned into the actual body and blood of Christ. Now, a lot of these beliefs were held and by the majority of the church, or by a large part of the church, part of this, but these were the times when they were established as dogma, to be believed by the faithful. What was that date again? 1215. What was it called? Transubstantiation. The statement in the Bible, this is my blood, this is my body. Taking it literally. See, I'm a literalist, but I take exceptions. <laughs> and that's where we all are, aren't we, huh? 1299. A dogma came to the after the effect that every human creature must be subject to the Roman pontiff for salvation. In 1854, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that is, that she was born without sin, 1854. In 1870, it was established that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is, in discharge of his office, he speaks infallibly. The date on that was 1870. In 1943, the Church is the mystical body of Christ and is identified with the Roman Catholic Church. And then finally, in 1950, it became dogma that the body of Mary was assumed, or the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, that she... 1950. I don't know. Yes. In 1870, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is, in discharge of his office, he speaks infallibly. 1870. In 1943, it was established that the Church is the mystical body of Christ and is identified with the Roman Catholic Church. What does that mean? That means that the Church of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church are coterminous. They are one. That you cannot be a member of the Church of Christ without being a member of the Roman Catholic Church. It's interesting how recent some of these Yeah, it is. Now, it doesn't mean that they were not believed prior to that. It's just that they were embraced as dogma at that time. Does the Pope speak ex cathedra when he speaks on birth control and so forth today to the Catholic population? Well, I'll have to ask the Catholics on that. Tom, is he speaking as cathedra when he puts out these bulls and uh, encyclicals? Church at that time to be what you would define as core? Yes, they would define that as core. Uh, 
existence? Yes, they're all in existence. What was the question? Well, when he speaks ex cathedra with these pronouncements and makes them dogma, would they say, would the Roman Catholic Church say that's essential? And I was saying yes, the Roman Catholic Church would, in making those pronouncements, would consider that to be essential. Yes. Yeah, I'll give it to you. In 1299, every human creature must be subject to the Roman Pontiff for salvation. Did you just skip some walk between 1299 and 1854, or was that a period of time? Well, those were the only ones that I had run across. I did not do an exhaustive study on it. Yes. Twelve fifteen A.D. It is interesting to note, however, that as we move into the year twelve hundred, there is no celibacy of the priests. They did not have the rosary. There were no indulgences. And there was the veneration of Mary, but not the Immaculate Conception. So you can see how things evolve then. I say that at, when we move from the 11th into the 12th, at the end of the 11th century, on into the 12th century, there was no celibacy of the priests. They did not have the rosary. There were no indulgences. And there was the veneration of Mary, but not the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, the liberalization of the Catholic Church in the last 20 years is a product of Vatican II. Um, if you enjoy this kind of reading and you want to do some study, a book that's a must, Tom and I were talking about this the other night, is, is a Three Popes and a Cardinal. And it's written by a man by the name of Malachi Martin. And uh, he, was, uh, he went through the priesthood. Uh, it was a very bright... Uh, young man and went over to the Vatican College or what do, they, what do they call it the Vatican School of Theology or whatever the specialized training for their leadership and he met a cardinal over there who was head of it by the name of Bay B-E-A and uh, he was one of the the bright spots in in Roman Catholicism and he came back to the United States and when Pius died and John took the papal throne he instituted Vatican II and because uh, of this, this young man's brilliance was invited by the Cardinal back over to help set up Vatican II. So he was involved in this. And in this book he talks about the liberalization of the church. And um, he talks about it despairingly. He feels that it was a... Uh, it ended up being negatively, negative for the, uh, the church because it became anti-authoritarian. It became secular. Um... The, the Roman Catholic uh, people used it as an excuse not to, to view the voice of authority as authoritative. And so he's rather negative on it. But the reason for it was that he felt that Pius was, was outdated. He was, um, he was had lost touch with where the masses of Roman Catholicism were living. And John, with his charismatic personality, 
and his godliness felt that he could open it up for dialogue and then put the thing back together again and give the people an opportunity to express themselves and, and uh, to try to bring the church more into conformity with where modern man was. But he died prematurely and his successor was never able to put the thing back in the bag. That's basically the thesis of the book. It's a fascinating study. Okay, the next period, 1200 to 1600 A.D. Is there any significance in these periods before No, not really. I just borrowed them from somebody else. This is the fourth expansion that it was boarded. Christianity had suffered one setback after another. By the year 1200 A.D., there were fewer Christians percentage-wise than there was in 400 A.D. We were going backwards now. We were not making good progress. Dissimulation had fractured and fragmented the church. The barbarians from the steep of Asia had laid, rest, laid waste to the empire. Islam destroyed the church in the Middle East, annihilated it in North Africa. The Vikings raised havoc with the regrouping Christians in Europe and virtually destroyed the Celtic missionary enterprise. It was a dark, dark day for Christianity. But it does not get better. By the time we move into the 13th century, Europe was basically at peace. The onslaught of the Vikings and of the Asiatic people had been spent. What happened was the European barbaric tribes began to fight among themselves. They had nobody else to fight. So the Pope, realizing that this was taking place, tried to channel their energies. Population in Europe, because they were no longer at war, was growing very rapidly. And the Pope, in, in order to take their energies and direct them in a more constructive way, formed what we know to be the Crusades. The Crusades turned out to be a very destructive force. It was a blight and a dark day in Christianity. First of all, the Crusades were anti Semitic. They killed many, many Jews. It was so bad that many of the Christians in the area in which they went on their crusade were hiding the Jews from the, the crusaders. They were going to Jewish settlements, disembowel pregnant women, throw children in the air and catch them on the end of the spear and do all kinds of terrible, terrible atrocities. The purpose of the crusades was to free the Holy Land from Islam. And so they came marching down, went through Constantinople, which remember was Byzantine, and was the seat of the eastern section of the empire, and to help these people in the reconquering of this land. To free the holy city of Jerusalem from the barbaric Islamic people and give it back to the Christians. That was the idea. But instead, that they ended up helping to destroy the Byzantine Empire. 
the Crusaders attacked uh, Constantinople and sacked it again and again they raised waste and havoc to it they deepened the gulf between the eastern and the western church and they established a deep-seated hatred between Islam and Christianity the Crusades the Inquisition the Holocaust were three of the darkest moments in Christianity the Crusades the Inquisition and the Holocaust It was perpetrated by Christian people. Hitler professed to be a Christian. Mussolini came out of a Christian tradition. Roman? I think Roman. As a Protestant, I'd like to say that. I don't know for sure. Yes. The Pope. The Pope encouraged it. The Pope called for him. Uh, I can't remember. I don't think I have it down here. I don't remember who it was. Uh, because there was a wide held, widely held belief that they were responsible for the death of Jesus and that they became the enemy of Christ, and this is precisely what Hitler believed. Christianity, a large segment of Christianity is anti-Semitic, gentlemen. A large segment of Christianity. The most... You're speaking of through the ages or are you speaking of today? Both. Both. Yeah, I think it's that you'd find a, an undercurrent of anti-Semitism in well, just a lot of our churches today. Yes. Yeah. I suspected Hitler of that because he came out of Austria, and Austria was never really did have a strong Protestant movement in it. Crusades, we had the children's crusades. And kids went on this march. They were finally, they never reached the Holy Lands. They were captured, made slaves. Parents lost many, many of the children through things like that. There were positive expressions of this energy in Europe. Cities were developed out of the monastic movements. Cathedrals were built. Universities, centers of learning. All of this came as a result of that. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the missionary effort was continued to be toward the north, that is, Russia. But because it was tied to the state, more closely than it was in Rome, Russia separated from Constantinople. And so the Russian Orthodox Church was developed with its own patriarch, simply because Russia did not want to be assimilated into the Eastern Byzantine Empire. Pope Leo the 11th, or excuse me, Pope Leo the 9th excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople in 1054 
the patriarch and king excommunicated the pope and that split the church once for all and it was over the issue of papal authority the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman churches up to that time there was dialogue between them there was they, they recognized one another's existence the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's not Greek or yeah, it's Greek. Like yes, yeah, so you see, the, the patriarchs never took upon themselves the full authority of the Pope, and so that they had the patriarchs who were a patriarch, for example, over the Russian Church and over the Greek Church and over the Coptic Church. That was all part of the Eastern. Orthodox. That's all part of the Eastern movement. Yeah. What was it? Ten fifty-four. Two years later, in 1056, you had the Battle of Hastings and the conquest of England by the Normans. Returning to the Eastern Orthodox Church, the monasteries were more mortal than they were subtle, that is, they were more tied to the church than they were in the West. They were not mobile, and therefore they were not missionary. And apart from the movement of the Greek Orthodox in the direction of Russia, the Orthodox Church has never been missionary-minded. And even to this day, it is not missionary-minded, simply because it does not have the agencies to express it. The agencies of missions has always been subtle. They have no vehicle. With the Russian and the Greek Orthodox Church today, theologically be similar yes <coughs> yes they would be similar can have a similar tradition the difference would just simply be their autonomy yes how much prior to the time when the Ottoman Turks took over Constantinople were the Crusaders there well about a hundred years later the uh, yes they finally fell. The Byzantine Empire fell in the 15th century. Would a Roman Catholic today uh, that uh, experienced a Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox religious service feel at home? I do not know. That's a good question, Bill, but I don't know that. <coughs> they would not. Would not. They're Christian, though, right? They celebrate Easter on Sunday. Yeah, you're in an area I don't know a great deal about. The Orthodox Church views the Roman Church as a as a threat. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, see, they were, yeah, they were not Greek in terms of race, but they were Greek in terms of tradition and language. No, none whatsoever. Okay. 
talk about a new form of monasticism that came into existence at this time. There was a merchant in Lorraine's France by the name of Peter Wallo. And he gathered some people together and called them the poor men of Lyons. He banded together much like CBMC would in a city, or like the Gideons. He asked the Pope for permission to function and was denied. So he went ahead and did it anyway. The church tried to stamp them out. And there were pockets of the Waldenses, as they were later called, in existence on into the 20th century. But the church viewed them as a threat. A few years later, there was another layman by the name of Francis of Assisi. He also was a businessman. He lived from 1181 to 1226. He likewise wanted to, to develop a, a lay ministry, and he went to the Pope and asked for permission. And the church had had such tremendous difficulty with Peter Waldo and the poor men of Laurens that he decided he wasn't going to make that mistake again. And so he allowed Francis of Assisi to form what we call the Franciscan Order. Francis of Assisi remained a layman until his death. This ushered in a new order called the Friars. F-R-I-A-R-S. Unlike the old orders, the Friars had as their objective evangelism. And this was something new in Roman Catholic orders. So from their conception, the Friars were mobile and they were missionary. Dominic, forming the Dominicans, 1170 to 1221, if you're interested in dates. They became an order of preachers. Unlike Francis, Dominic was a priest and a student. And he established um, teachers and schools, and they had their main emphasis in the university system. The order of the fires had as their motto, the world is your home, your work is the Great Commission. Not great. The world is your home, your work is the Great Commission. It preceded the Protestant missionary movement by 600 years. So the Roman Catholics were involved in missionary work 600 years before the Protestants got involved. One of the most dynamic orders came into existence through a man by the name of Ignatius Loyola. Remember what they called it? Yeah, the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. That's right. 1491 to 1556 is when he lived. And he came and he formed his order to be to the Pope what the Marine Corps is to the President of the United States. That was his avowed purpose. It was, it was a, the Pope's special army. And just like the Marines can be put into action without the consent of Congress and without declaring war, it's, it's a special arm of the President of the United States, that's exactly what the, the Jesuits were to the Pope. And they became very instrumental in the Counter-Reformation. This was the first fresh missionary movement in over a thousand years.
Where were the Benedictines? Yeah. They were up to Yeah, they sure did. And they were not a missionary order. They would be out of the old orders as far as the Roman Catholic Church was concerned. Bernard of Carvel and, and all these men were, were not friars in the sense that they had their avowed aim missions. I don't know. I thought it was the uh, the Franciscans that had done that, but uh, I'm not sure on that. Yes. Right, correct, and assuming that there are a lot of people that have had a lot of trouble with the Jesuits then down through the years. They were involved in what, the Inquisition and numerous other things, huh? Yes. A very positive force and uh, a very active force. And um, from the Protestant point of view, from the Protestant perspective, a very negative force. Were, they were evangelistic, though. Exceedingly. Yeah. Why uh, Because they uh, did so much to stop the Protestant Reformation. And if you're a Roman Catholic, you say that's good. If you're a Protestant, you say that's bad. <laughs> How did they do it? How did they do that? We'll talk about that in a few moments. We're not to the Reformation yet. But they were just, just actively got involved, like you would in evangelism. He's got out there and beat the bushes and started to, to preach and to stop and change and coerce and put on a rock people who wouldn't <laughs> follow <laughs> whatever it took we're going to do it <laughs> we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse <laughs> but they were very effective they were formed in the beginning of the 16th century right around the same time as the Reformation yes We'll talk about them more. But gentlemen, not since the Celtics and the followers of Jesus before the Celtics had the gospel then cut faith in the modality and allowed to expand. When Marco Polo went to China in 1269 A.D., he came back again a few years later, told his story, and a couple of Dominicans followed him on in. But before they arrived, the, the hardship was too great, and they turned back and lost an opportunity to penetrate China with Marco Polo. The friars, with all their evangelism, failed to penetrate the pagan lands. When they went east, they refused to cooperate with the Nestorians, considering the Nestorians heretics. Now remember, the Nestorians were the product of the early church movement as back in the days after Christ who had gone in this direction who had gone on into Persia and into uh, the Middle Eastern countries there was still a force in there and when they went in there they refused to associate with them and uh, uh, cooperate with them Friars specifically referred to Franciscans? Well the friars were all these Benedict orders they did not reach the Turks in their advance and lost that opportunity and the reason for that is they could not adapt and change to the foreign cultures. 
Interesting. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 something that I think is really at the heart of evangelism. The heart of missions. The heart of expansion. Let's turn to it for a moment. He's talking about his philosophy of the ministry in 1 Corinthians 9. And he says in verse 19 following, I'd like you to follow along. I want to read it to you. I'm going to read it out of the original language here. So, uh, I know that's going to be different than some of your Bibles. What was that newfangled translation you were using this morning, Bob? You didn't like it? <laughs> Us traditionalists have problems with those kind of translations. What was it? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> I have the original language. With Paul and Jesus and the great missionaries you all used. Yes. Affectionately known as good news for 17th century man. Alright. Verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all mean all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partakers thereof with you. Paul, as best he could, was a chameleon. But in essence, what he did is he identified what he considered in his life to be the core. And in that he never compromised. But in everything else, everything was negotiable depending on his audience. And what he tried to do in his missionary movement was just simply blend with the people, the culture. When I'm with the Jews, I act like a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I act like a Gentile. When the people are professing a belief in the law, I profess a belief in the law. When people don't eat meat, I don't eat meat. When people enjoy meat, I enjoy meat. He says, I'm all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Now see, that is one of the toughest hurdles for men to jump as they minister. That ability to adapt. And whenever you relate to the non-Christian men, you've got one of two choices. It's a cultural gap, by the way. Whenever you relate to the non-Christian, you're relating to a different culture. And there's as much culture shock as it is going to another country. Therefore, you've got a choice. You can either insist that the non-Christian adapt to your culture, or you can adapt to his culture. Paul says, I'm in the business of adapting to the pagans. For the sake of the gospel. And if we say that they've got to adapt to our culture, that our perspective... To that degree, we are not effective. And that was the problem with the missionary movement back in these early days. They did well in the lands that they conquered, such as Mexico, the Philippines, Peru, and so forth. Because in those lands, there was no strong religion present. They were animistic, and they uh, were backward in their religious convictions. So they had a rather easy time. But because they were tied to the modality, that was, they were amenable to the Pope. They did not have the freedom to adapt and to improvise. 
therefore the part of the, 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 uh, the friars of the Roman Catholic order, though they were missionary minded, they were never as successful as the Protestant missionary movement, who had the privilege of establishing autonomous sodalities, not amenable to the uh, modality. Now, in closing, go ahead, yes. When you mention the word friar, does that mean a Franciscan? Or does that mean a Jesuit? It means all of these who are part of this new order, this new uh, group of, uh, a way of thinking in terms of monastic order. Why don't I quote here now? It's almost six. We have time to read, Bob. Seven, six thirty? Six thirty. Yeah, I think we've had enough, and I'll pick it up from here tonight. But I want to come back and talk a little bit more about that. A willingness to adapt to cultures this evening as we get started again.